Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to today's episode, The Silent Servant. Today, I'll be speaking with Mary Beth Lenteen about her father, Jim Tucker. Jim was an accomplished physical therapist, a master carpenter, and a devoted father and friend. A debilitating stroke at the age of 60 took away his ability to speak, yet he grew in his ability to inspire and serve others. I'd now like to welcome Mary Beth to our show to share her father's story. Welcome, Mary Beth. Thanks for having me, James. Well, we're really glad to have you here, and I'd like to start off by asking you, where was your father born? Where was he from? Where did he grow up? He was born on September 11th, 1937 in Wellsville, New York. It's a very small farming community. He has an older brother, a younger sister, and uh, my grandmother was a school teacher. My grandfather worked for the Curtis Wright conglomerate at the time as a welder and inventor. Great. So what about his childhood? Are there any stories that you've heard about him growing up in that area? Well, I know that he was very, very big into scouting and became an Eagle Scout at age 13. And the highlight of his young life was that he attended the Jamboree, was put on a train by himself uh, with other kids, but without my grandparents. And off he went, and he absolutely loved it. So he was someone who would have been pretty good in the outdoors. Oh, absolutely. Very self-sufficient. He didn't need any help. Correct. Right. What about schooling? Where, where did he go to school, and what were some of the things that he liked to do in school? He went to Ithaca College, uh, which he loved to show off, brought us up there for weekend trips sometimes, uh, where he was on the soccer team. He actually went to college on a soccer scholarship. He went for physical therapy. And did that remain a passion of his, physical therapy? Physical therapy was my father's life. What was it that he liked the most about physical therapy? What was it that really attracted him to that? My father was a helper. Uh, he wanted to help people all the time. That was just in his nature. So if he could help you walk, if he could help you with groceries at the grocery store, if he could uh, help you build something, whatever it was, as long as he was helping and physical therapy fit right into that desire. Now, when he was doing physical therapy, was he sort of cutting edge? Did he contribute a lot to that profession? Some of my earliest memories are of him working at Kessler Institute in West Orange, where he eventually became the first director of physical therapy. He started working there in 1961, I believe. And when my sister and I were young, he would take us there on weekends because he worked seven days a week. And we would play with other uh children who were patients or in the occupational therapy department where we thought it was actually a playroom. And my dad would be in this little makeshift craft room, is, uh, for lack of a better word, with uh, another physical therapist named Bob Bedato. 
and Bob and my dad would try to craft orthotics and prosthetics before that was a thing. Plaster of Paris it was something that was stocked quite often, and they would use whatever materials they had handy with whatever skills they could bring to the table to try to create limbs that would allow people some kind of a better quality of life. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I did want to back up a little bit. So your father was from upstate New York, and he ended up in northern New Jersey. What was the reason for that? He wanted to work at Kessler Institute. He had heard that Mr. Kessler was uh, very prominent in the field. The Kessler Institute at the time was housing people from all over the world. It was world-renowned. That is what he wanted. He, he wanted to see what was wrong, how he could help you to get to whatever goal you wanted. If walking was what you wanted, then he would help you walk. If running was what you wanted, he would do everything he could to help you to run again. The patient was number one to him. Correct. Yeah. What was it like growing up with uh, Jim as your dad? What was it like regarding him with his hobbies, his interests? And tell us a little bit about your family, your mom, and your sisters. Sure. My dad met my mom in Kessler Institute. She was Dr. Kessler's secretary. They got married, had myself and two younger sisters. My dad was a workaholic. He really did work seven days a week. We didn't see him a whole lot. When we did, it was usually quality time. He was a tinkerer. He was always building, rebuilding, tearing down, building better. Things in the house, the bathroom that got remodeled four times in one year because he didn't like the way something sat on the wall. After it snowed one year, he built a snow mound in the backyard for us uh, to sled down. He built us a fort in the backyard. We had all of the playground equipment in our yard, so everybody played in our yard when we were little. He loved to play the guitar. After my grandmother died, I, another early memory is him sitting on the bottom of my bed just playing hymn music to me with his guitar, trying to calm me down and just to make me feel comforted. He was very active in church. We lived near our church and he was there helping all the time, especially as he got older. Did your dad have a good voice? Um, he had a voice. I, th <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was more the intent than the result. As your dad got older, is it true that he started to have a few health problems? He did. He left Kessler Institute and went into private practice. During that time, he had several occasions to visit the emergency room with what was then diagnosed as stomach issues, ulcer issues, pulled muscle in his back. It was the same thing over and over and over again until he had his big heart attack. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that all those little occurrences were actually uh, small heart attacks that he had been having that were not diagnosed right. And how old approximately was he when he had his first heart attack? Merida? He was just over 50 years old. Didn't he have some other health issues as well? He had a familial tremor, which uh, both his brother and sister had, which 
affected his ability to write smoothly, not to write, but just to have smooth lines. They were always a little jagged. And when he got tired, it got a little bit worse. And the older he got, it got a little bit worse. Now, as he was continuing in his practice, did that affect his ability to practice physical therapy at all? Do you mean after the heart attack? Well, when his, when he started getting the familial tremors and the heart attack. The familial tremors didn't really stop him from doing anything, really. Uh, he kept right on working. Even after his heart attack, he listened to what the doctor said and absorbed maybe 20% of it, did maybe half of the 20%, and then went right back to work. So when your dad got older and he was close to 60 years old, he had a major health issue. Can you tell us about that? He did. My dad had a massive stroke. And that resulted in him being admitted to Kessler Institute in West Orange, which we wanted because they were the best of the best for people with strokes. We wanted him surrounded by people that he was going to be comfortable with to get the best care in every aspect of the stroke and its residual effects. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey from the point that he had that stroke until he sort of reconciled to the fact that his life had changed? Can you tell us about that journey? Sure. When he was in the hospital, when he was in the rehab facility in Kessler Institute, he was very shaken. His ability to speak was taken away from him. And in when I say ability to speak, for many people who have had a stroke, what they think they're saying and what they say are two very different things. He actually recognized that what he was saying was not what he was trying to say. Mm. And he got frustrated before we even had an opportunity to try to understand what he was saying. One of the very first words that he did say was patient. And we used to joke about it because of all the words that you could say, not your wife, not your children, but the word patient, which just goes to show you that his patience and physical therapy and that whole world really were that ingrained in him that despite having that ability taken away, it was something that came through. And we embraced it. But the longer he was in therapy, the more depressed, frustrated, and upset he got. And I think a lot of it, in hindsight, is because he was not on his A game in front of colleagues that he respected, but also had a great respect for him. And I think he felt embarrassed, angry. And I I will tell you that at one point, he broke a tooth or something while he was in Kessler Institute. And I had to take him out uh, for the day to take him to his dentist's office. We had to go on a major highway to get there. And on our way back, we were near a junction where you could go either this way or that way and end up in the same place. I chose the left-hand way, and he wanted the right-hand way. 
before I could even realize what was happening, he grabbed the steering wheel while we were driving 60 miles an hour, took the car across two lanes of traffic so that I could make this exit. I almost had a heart attack myself. I pulled the car over. I was crying. I was upset. I was yelling at him. And he just didn't understand why I was so upset. He wanted me to go this way. He had no other way of telling me. And that was the only way that he could communicate that was physically. It was the beginning of us seeing that we were going to have to figure out some different ways of communicating with him and having him understand that we weren't going to be able to do things the way we used to do them. So it was a learning experience for you and your family as well as a learning experience for him. How long a period would you say he was really in transition and kind of angry? Wow. I mean, I think it was an ongoing process for the rest of his life. But in the beginning, a couple of years that he would try to learn new things, uh, what stores could he go to? I will say that he, he couldn't speak. He could write His familial tremor got very, very bad after that stroke. And some of the words were not legible. But most of the time they were okay. He couldn't write sentences. He could only write words. And even then the words might not be the word that he meant it to be. He could write car and he meant dog. He could write house and he meant floor. It really, sometimes there was no rhyme or reason. We learned to play 20 questions. He would write down what he wanted to say, however that came out, whatever it looked like. And then we would say, is it a place you want to go to? Is it something you want to buy? Is it someone you want to talk to? And then whatever his answer was, yes or no, from that, we would whittle it down until we eventually got it. And then he'd sit there and say, yeah, yeah. (laughs) We would all laugh. (laughs) Like, yeah, why didn't you get that in the beginning? That's what I was trying to say. (laughs) When do you feel that he was turning the corner? I think the first time that he was able to laugh at himself. The first time that he was able to see that he wrote something down, and honestly, I don't remember what it is, but I can picture the scene. He wrote something down like he wanted scrambled eggs. So we made scrambled eggs. And then he looked at us and said, and looked at us with the expression on his face of, why did you make me scrambled eggs? We said, but dad, that's what it says, scrambled eggs. You wrote it in your pad, it's scrambled eggs. And he was like, no, he'd shake his head no, and then he'd point to an apple. And then we'd be like, well, then why did I just make scrambled eggs? Up until that point, he would get a little embarrassed, which would cause him to become a little frustrated, which would cause him to become a little angry, And he could lash out, which was not his personality pre-stroke. But that day, he just shrugged his shoulders and laughed, sat down, and ate the scrambled eggs. Oh, that that was the first sign then that he was actually starting to improve. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you now, when he started to improve and pull away from the intense anger and frustration when he started to make that transition. What did his life look like? Well, one thing that helped was when he was just speaking to us, it would 
be one of those situations where you just want to hit your head on the wall. You could play the 20 questions and he would shake his head yes, but mean no, shake his head no and mean yes. It would be frustration on his part, frustration on our part. And he would feed, we would feed off of each other in that. And it was very non-productive and quite honestly ended up in tears, probably more on my part than anything. But then he started buying pads, little three inch by five inch pads, if that big, I'm not even sure, with the spiral top. He bought a couple of them and he put some things inside the cardboard cover of that pad. And it had his name, his social security number, because in his era, that was like a very important piece of data, his address, his phone number, my name, my phone number, my sister's name, her phone number. He would use that pad to try to write to us. And it was a much more effective way of him communicating. He could write what he wanted better than he could pantomime or speak, obviously, because the words really weren't really words. It got to the point where he would buy the pads in bulk and we could go up to him and look at his pad. He always wore shirts with pockets. He could not have a shirt if it didn't have a pocket in it because the, the pocket always held his pad and his silver cross pen. We would pull out his pad and say, oh, dad, you had a busy week this week. It looks like you went to Friendly's for breakfast and you went to Frank's for lunch. And where did you, oh, you went out for dinner three times this week. And we could see everything he had for the week because he wrote everything down. And that helped a lot. He was always a handy person, as you said before. Did he continue to do things around the house or around his children's houses? What was that like for him? He knew that one thing that he couldn't do were numbers. Numbers did not work for him unless he was adding, <laughs> unless he was adding money. Money numbers, he did very well. Measurement numbers, not so well. And so he knew his limitations and oddly, because I had never seen that ever when I was young, he would say, I can't do that. I had never heard my father say I couldn't do something. There was nothing he didn't try ever in his entire life. He, there's nothing that he didn't at least attempt to do on his own. Once uh, after the stroke and, and he got more comfortable in his own skin, he would say, well, I can't. He would shake his head no and, and point to his head, meaning my stroke. I can't do that anymore because of my stroke. And I'd say, well, what can you do? What, how can you help me? When I bought my house and we had to do some construction inside the house, he couldn't help to measure for the sheetrock, but he could spackle. He could hold something up to the wall and he would just put himself right there and hold something and pick something up and say, okay, I'm here. I'm ready. What, what, do you, what can I do? How can I help you? And that's what he did. So he kept doing what he loved. He did in whatever aspect he could physically do it. So if he couldn't build furniture anymore, like he did my bedroom set when I was a little girl, he built my dresser, built my bed. If he couldn't do that anymore, then he would do the next best thing, which would be to help someone else do it. And put in his two cents whenever he could. <laughs> so you mentioned that he used to go write down places he'd been to eat. Did the people in town get to know him a little bit? Everybody knew Jim Tucker. There was a hardware store that's unfortunately not there anymore. He would go into the hardware store 
they actually put things on account for him. And they had our number. And then at the end of the month, they would call us up and say, okay, your dad was here. This is what he bought. You know, this is how much it comes to. And then we would settle the bill with them. Or they were having trouble understanding something that he was looking for. They would call us up and say, your dad is here. We're not understanding what he wants. Do you think you could help us out? He went out to eat all the time. That was his favorite thing to do was to go out to eat. He especially enjoyed breakfast. That was just his thing. He went to a little place in West Caldwell called the Train Diner. And when my mother-in-law passed away, we were in her apartment. I knew my dad would want to be there. And he didn't have a phone, obviously, because we could, he couldn't speak. So we said, well, let's see, what time is it? Oh, look, it's 12 o'clock. He's probably at the train restaurant. <laughs> so we called the train restaurant and said, I know this is a weird request, but I'm looking for my dad. I think he might be there eating. His name is James Tucker, and he doesn't speak. And they said, Jimmy, sure, Jimmy, somebody's on the phone for you. <laughs> it, it just, in a very sad situation, <laughs> it made us all laugh so much. There was a day when my friend Kelly and I... By the way, Kelly is my wife. And my best friend, uh, took my dad to a radiation appointment. On the way home, he decided that he wanted to go to Frank's Trattoria in West Caldwell for lunch. So Kelly and I said, okay, you know, we got the wheelchair, the, we were all ready to go, we pull up in front, we get him out of the car, we get him in the wheelchair, we get him inside the restaurant, we have our lunch, the bill comes. So Kelly and I are vying for trying to get the bill so we can pay the bill. Before we even raise our hand, my father snatches that bill off the table and holds it to him with this hysterical little ha-ha-ha expression on his face. We said, Dad, what are you doing? You don't have any money. You don't even have a wallet. Just let me have the bill so I can pay the bill. It turns out before he left the house, he had snuck some cash into the pocket of his sweatpants so that he could take Kelly and I out for lunch. And he paid that bill. He refused to let us pay it. Now, that is a wonderful story. Now, as far as his grandchildren are concerned, uh, how did he interact with them? He loved them immensely. My sister's middle son and youngest son played soccer. My father played soccer. That was something that he really enjoyed. They were in high school and he would go, he wouldn't miss a game, did not miss a game, didn't miss a track meet. No matter what was going on, what the weather was, how he was feeling, what was going on in his life, he never missed a game. Oh, that's terrific. Now, I also wanted to ask you about his faith. You had said that he was active in church. After his stroke, was he still active in church? Oh, absolutely. Probably more so because he was on disability at that point and not working uh, a thousand hours a day, it felt like. Uh, He and a couple of the other men at the church, I think they dubbed them the Tuesday morning crew. They would get together, obviously on Tuesdays, they would have breakfast together where they would regale each other with, I'm sure, insanely hysterical stories, which my father would just not contribute to, would just laugh at. And then they would go over to the church and do whatever the church needed. If they needed new floors, he would, they would put the new floors in. If they needed the lawn cut, they'd cut the lawn. If something was broken, they'd repair it. And usually at their own expense, he would 
he, my, especially my father, I can only speak for my father, not the other men, but I know that he would go out and buy something and then bring it to the church and donate it. Well, I have to interject here a little bit because I was blessed to have been good friends with Jim Tucker. My wife and I and my family all knew him very well. And there's a few things, although we knew Jim well before his last stroke, there were certain things after the stroke that really stick with me. When you mentioned he was active in the church, he not only was on the work crew, and he used to do some amazing things considering he had the shaking hands and he had the inability to speak, he also sang in our choir. And I know that sounds impossible, but for Jim Tucker, nothing was impossible. No, it was not. So what happened was, He would come to every choir practice, and he would hum, and he would keep a perfect tune along with the choir. And on some occasions, we're pretty sure we actually heard him singing words, because every once in a while, a word would come out that wasn't his usual patient. Correct. And on one occasion, my wife Kelly had organized a Christmas program, and at the very end of this Christmas program, Kelly said, Merry Christmas to all and to, and Jim Tucker said, all a good night. And she worked with him for days on that. And he actually said a sentence. And I think there wasn't a dry eye in the house (laughs) when he said it. But he was an amazing guy. He showed up for every practice. I was also in a couple Bible studies with Jim. And he would come, and he'd bring his Bible, and he would sit and listen intently to the study. And you could tell by his eyes and his body language, he was totally engaged in the study. And his favorite gospel was Luke. I remember one of his favorite parts of the Bible study was at the end when we all asked for prayer. And each person would come up with a prayer that they needed that week. And he would take out his little pad, write down, pray for my sister Shirley, Mm -hmm. or pray for my friend. Uh, He would always have a request. He would have this look of concern on his face as he pointed to their name because he was very, very concerned that we pray for those people. Even men that he met from when, when we changed churches and went to another church, he still came to our study, and these men met him, and he became one of the boys instantly. And they all just sat there watching him, and within no time at all, they felt like they knew him too. I did want to add that. Thank you. And another thing, you mentioned about him doing things outside. I think, and maybe you can corroborate this, he loved to weed. Is that true? That is very true. He lived for a period of time with my sister's ex-husband, Pete. He considered Pete the son he never had. At Pete's house, they had paver stones around an in-ground pool. And my dad, the neighbors, really did not like him. He would go out at 8 o'clock in the morning on a weekend with his shop vac and a screwdriver and get all the weeds out from between all the bricks in the backyard and suck everything up with his shop vac. And then when he was done doing that, hours of back-breaking work, a man who had a massive stroke and heart attack 
doing hours of work that I don't think I could do, he would drive over to your house, whether you were home or not, and weed in front of the flag in the front of your yard. I remember one time I was at work and my wife Kelly sent me a, texted me a picture of Jim out in front of our house. It was a little flagpole that had some stone around it, which he had put down, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And he was systematically weeding that that little circle, and Kelly sent it to me, and it just warmed my heart to see that. One other thing I have to add, so Jim could write a few words here and there, Mm -hmm. and one thing Jim didn't do was forget a birthday or an anniversary. I don't remember seeing it written down anywhere, but he would always, always knock on the door, you'd hear the knock, and then he'd be standing out there with a smug little expression on his face, and there would be a box of candy and a birthday card for me or my, one of my sister or one of my grand, uh, his granddaughters, uh, or I forget what he got for the boys. I don't think it was candy, but he always sent a card, always, always, always. And sometimes I remember when I first went back to work, he would, he dropped flowers off to me at my new job. It was my first job going back after having the kids. And he just showed up at work with this massive bouquet of flowers from my desk. It was my, he did the exact same thing to my sister. Anniversaries, birthdays for us, for his friends, our extended family. He was always down at CVS buying birthday cards, coming back, going to get stamps. If you needed a stamp, you always knew where to go. He had a desk drawer full of them that we cleaned out after he passed away. Uh, We used to hear the doorbell ring on our birthdays and anniversaries, and there'd be Jim standing at our front door with a birthday card or an anniversary card. That was just something that we could always expect from him. And we miss that, I'll tell you, very, very much. Toward the end, Jim's final illness, how did he face that? He had been complaining of some belly pain. We took him to a doctor. It turns out he had a hernia. He had to go in for surgery, which he did, had the hernia repaired, and afterwards was still experiencing a lot of pain, but not able to describe the pain, really only being able to use a hand and point. The doctors weren't really concerned. They thought it was post-surgical aches and pains. And it turns out that he had cancer. He had a tumor on his spine that was causing all the pain. How did he manage that? He'd been through so much already with his disabilities from his stroke and everything. How did he manage that illness. He handled it exactly the way he handled his stroke. He looked at it, said, okay, what can't I do? Okay, I won't do that. So what can I do or how can I do it? And that's how he did it. He was in an extreme amount of pain for most of that time period. He was diagnosed in August and he died in October. It was very, very fast. That period of time was bad. We had many, many ER visits for the pain when the pain just got to be too much for us to handle, not for him to handle, for us to watch him handling. Really, that was it. He still went to my daughter's wedding. We took him, got the transportation and got him to the wedding. He didn't stay, couldn't stay the whole time, but he, there was no way he was missing that. 
He still went to sporting events. We just had to have chairs and he couldn't walk long distances and we made accommodations for it, but he still did it. He went to the movies with us. He entertained people in his apartment. We moved him to be closer to my sister so that as the time wore on, there would be our family there to help him 24-7. We hired somebody, a wonderful woman named Fran, to help feed him and care for him and clean and more feed him and just more keep him company than anything. And that helped a lot. Your dad, this is a little story I want to tell myself is that I know your dad was very interested in model trains and toy trains. <laughs> mm, yes. On top of all of his other interests, he loved model trains. And I know you've told me and I've actually seen some of his model trains and it was a massive collection. And I know he was very fascinated with them. And it was probably within a month before he passed. Maybe it was even just a few weeks away. Kelly and I went to visit a friend who showed me some old train magazines that he had dating back to the 1940s. And I saw it. I thought, I know somebody who would be really interested in seeing this. Now, your dad was in the hospital. And he, as you said, he was in a lot of pain. I just was overwhelmed when I saw his face when he saw the train magazines. Mm -hmm. You've heard the term kid on Christmas. He was a kid on Christmas. He saw those magazines and he started leafing through them, pointing to pages and writing me little notes. And basically what he was telling me was, these were the exact train magazines he had as a kid, and he loved them. And it gave me a lot of joy to see him loving that as well. In the end, he cataloged every single train that he had. I, we just couldn't believe it, it the, the detail of what he was doing. And I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder right now, Mary Beth, at one of his trains that's mm -hmm. on my bookshelf, which I cherish and always will. I just wanted to ask about the time that Jim did pass, was a, day, a few days before he did. There was a time, wasn't there, when you thought it was his final hour? Okay. And what happened? So to back up a little bit, my dad may have had a heart attack and a massive stroke that changed his life drastically. And probably other people would have stopped their life but he never looked at anything as stopping that just, he just didn't, it wasn't part of his vocabulary. As he grew more comfortable with his limitations that he did have, he developed this odd sense of humor. And <laughs> uh, he, one of the, his favorite things to do was to watch my husband and I argue. He never sided for me ever. It, it was, it was just not fair. And sometimes he would egg my husband on. And then he would sit there and do this silent chuckle where his shoulders would shake up and down while he was laughing to himself. And he would just be having such a grand old time with it. Yeah. So that was one of the things that he did. How about when he was really, you, we all thought that he was going to pass away. So it, I think it was a Friday night. His breathing had gotten very shallow and was starting to space very far apart. And we really thought that he probably only had a few hours left. So we called everybody that we thought would want to be there. And there was a, uh, about 22 or 23 people in the bedroom. Um, it was about 7 or 8 o'clock at night. 
we took turns reading from the book of Luke because I thought I was going to get through this without crying. We wanted that to be the last thing that he heard other than us saying that we loved him. We spent five hours in that bedroom reading, talking about memories, saying we loved him, crying, watching him breathe and then not breathe, and then waiting for him to breathe again, and then the times would get bigger and bigger. And and then he opened his eyes and pointed to a cookie on a nightstand and motioned that he wanted the cookie in his mouth. And we all looked at each other and said, are you kidding me? We just stood here for five hours getting ready to put you in the ground. (laughs) And you want a cookie? (laughs) And everyone just started laughing and saying, okay, night, pop, pop. We'll see you. We'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. And everyone dispersed. (laughs) As I recall, when he, he opened his eyes and before he beckoned to have the cookie, Didn't he say, wow? He looked around and saw everyone staring at him. And he just always said, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh, my goodness gracious. That was like his last big joke. (laughs) And then we know that not long after that, he did pass away. And can you tell us a little bit about that? that last moment you had with him, because I think it's really special. Well, I got to spend the night with him. Uh, I stayed with him all night, held his hand all night, took a picture of his hand in mine, so I have it forever. Um, That hand, that hand guided me through my whole life. Mm -hmm. That hand built, uh, practically built the house that I grew up in. That hand created limbs for people who had no limbs. That hand helped give a quality of life to someone who had a devastating injury and needed rehabilitation. That hand taught. He would teach in different conferences of physical therapy. He would be invited to be a speaker. That hand prayed. That hand cooked. That hand drove. That hand played golf. That hand held a remote control uh, model airplane or model boat. Uh, another one of his hobbies, that hand, that hand was his life. I knew at one point he opened his eyes and looked at the corner of the room. And my father, who hadn't spoken a word in 20 years, or 15 years rather, uh, looked at the corner of the room and his face lit up. And he stared at that room and he said, I made it. I made it. And we knew that he he saw Jesus and he saw heaven and he was going to the place that he had been preparing for his whole life. That gave, brought us such solace and um, just a, a good peace of mind. Oh, Mary Beth, that is a beautiful story about a beautiful man. And I just want to ask you, how did your dad impact you? How did he impact your life? He was a person who believed that every single person in this world had value, no matter who you were. Growing up, I didn't realize that that wasn't something that everybody held. He never hesitated to give something of himself, money, food, time, treasures, abilities. He was a helper, a giver. It's who he was. And the stroke 
took some of that ability away from him that he learned to channel in other ways. He learned how to still be that servant, how he could be a helper to other people with the disability that he had, but the abilities that he had were more. He really looked at his ability before he saw his disability. And it took him a few years to get to that point, but when he did, there was no stopping him. And he modeled all that for you. And you felt that that was sort of hardwired into your heart about helping others. Absolutely. And my youngest sister, Barbara, became an EMT. And her children are also EMTs. It has this legacy effect. Speaking of legacy, what do you think your dad, as a very humble person, I know he was extremely humble, what would he want his legacy to be? Uh, for people to trust in God, that was very important to him. His faith was very, very important to him. For people to trust other people with respect, that was something that he always showed. He wanted us to do the same. And for everyone to, well, for us, to be helpers, to figure out where to look for the need and to fill that need. And to educate ourselves. My dad loved his degree in physical therapy. Learning was very, very important. Wow, Mary Beth, what a great legacy your dad has left. Faith, respect for others, and the love of being a lifelong learner. Your dad had a true servant's heart and inspired a lot of people. He was not only a friend to me, but since I lost my dad many years ago, he stepped in and became a second father to me. For that, I'll be forever grateful. I want to thank you, Mary Beth, for sharing your dad's story with us today. And for all of our listeners, until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.